So Jesus is coming back soon. Jesus is coming back soon. That's one of the main themes we see in this book. But also, there's things that I see in life that point to that each and every day. And one of them was this morning on my way to church, in fact. Uh, my wife and I, Pam, have amazing neighbors, uh, dear friends. And my neighbor, Mike, was shoveling his driveway uh, as I was pulling out and coming to church. And I rolled my window down, and he came over. And he said, are you preaching this morning? I said, yeah. And he's like, well, you can tell your church this. And Mike is an avid Packer fan. And he said, today and from here on out, I'm a Bears fan. <laughs> and so Jesus is coming back if we see things like that happen. So be on the lookout. He said, there's going to be lots of people you're going to need a comfort in that church this morning. And so I'm trusting God that'll happen. Sports is trivial at best, but some of the things that we experience in this life, we desperately need soul comfort for, and thankfully, God gives us that. This is somewhere we find ourselves in this place often. What do you do when your Christian convictions and the circumstances and surroundings of your world appear to be in different places? What do you do when the truths that you hold dear, the Christian convictions, your faith in Jesus Christ, that you know in the core of your being is real, is increasingly more so falling in opposition with the mainstream of the world you live in. What do you do when you find yourself in that place? That is the exact spot that the original hearers of the word and the book of Revelation found themselves. They were living in this place where the Christian convictions they knew to be true and real were in direct opposition with the ruling authority of the land. And in fact, it was causing much hardship. The book of Revelation was not written to confuse us but to bless us and to bless this group of people and give them a wonderful assurance in a very, very difficult place that Jesus Christ is still Lord and King and ruler over all. There's a lot of confusion around the book of Revelation because too many times well-intentioned Christians have viewed this book like a theological puzzle to figure out. They've taken the book of Revelation and a news source and they try to work out and map out what's coming and trying to figure out the future and to treat the letter of the book of Revelation in that way flattens the mountain of hope that is intended to give us. To treat the book of Revelation as a theological Rubik's Cube to find out information that we want waters down the message of the original hope we have in Christ that it wants to give us. The Apostle John is writing this letter and he has this amazing encounter with the risen, ascended, exalted Lord Jesus. And he wanted to give hope and assurance to a wonderful group of Christians who were experiencing persecution and difficulty because of their faith. 
They were being tortured and persecuted. And they were beginning to wonder, is this God stuff real? Here's a little tip about reading the Bible. So many of us as Christians, we read this Bible and we think 100% this book was written for me, just to me. And though in a sense that's true, this book can be applied to you and it's God's revelation to you. So the part of that is true. But we, what we always have to understand is there was an original audience and an original context of everything that was written in here. And good, accurate Bible study application is to find out what was going on in that context. What was this letter written for? What was on the heart of the original author? And then apply that to our lives. And that's what I hope to do throughout this series. Throughout this series, is, and we're going to take most of the year going through this book, my hope is that we dive into that truth and understanding the people who first heard this book heard the gospel and gave their lives to Jesus Christ. They were Christians. They also believed that Jesus Christ was coming back soon. But then all of a sudden they found themselves in that place. They found themselves in this place where the pressure was increasing. The persecution was increasing. And they began to wonder can we hang on to this faith or should we let this go? Is this true and real? And while the church comparatively was small and scattered, the Roman Empire of that day was strong and significant. Persecution for Christians was intensifying on all levels and it was becoming very difficult for them to live out their faith as people of God. We can't comprehend it in 2022 in the United States today. These Christians in that day needed to hear from God. They needed to know that God was real. They needed God to give his perspective. They needed to know that in the midst of these difficult circumstances, he is still Lord. They needed to know that so that the circumstances they were living in would not completely overwhelm them and cause them to lose their faith because they were living in that place right there. They needed to simply hear and understand that Jesus is still the ruling, reigning, triumphant Lord and King over all. And he always will hold that title. We are beginning a new series today that I've been looking forward to for a long time. Because though I don't believe we are experiencing the type of persecution that the original hearers of this letter are experiencing... I do believe as time goes by, our Christian convictions and the values of the world that we live in are clashing at certain points. And in those places, we need that reminder. We need the reminder of what God gives us through the book of Revelation. So we're in this series called The Lion, the Lamb, and Lord. We're going to walk through the book of Revelation this year. We'll take some breaks, but we're going to start now and probably end it sometime in November. If you are looking for a roadmap to tell you when Jesus is coming back, you're going to be sorely disappointed because that is not what this book is necessarily about. We will be looking at the prophecies of the future, but we want to treat this book in context. And what I want to do this morning is set it in its proper place so that we can do that. 
I want to give you some background of this book this morning, and I'm just going to cover after that the first six verses. So let's look at the background. First of all, and this is kind of a nitpicky thing with Dan. Uh, it's not a huge deal, but as long as we're here, I might as well mention it. Notice that it's the book of Revelation, no S, and not the book of Revelations, which I often hear all the time. Revelation, it's one grand revelation with lots of different parts to it. The book is an unveiling of the unseen spiritual forces that are in operation that we often don't take in consideration each and every day we wake up. It's an unveiling of the unseen spiritual forces that are operating behind the scenes in history and in the present and that will be operating in the future. It's a super unique book. It's different from a lot of the other books. It's known as an apocalypse or apocalyptic literature, which means unveiling or revealing. One commentator said this, it's an unveiling by God of the things he wants the church to know in language and forms that quite simply dazzle and shock. It's an unveiling of the things that God wants his church to know. He wants us to know these things. And he does it in a dazzling and shocking way. It's uniquely powerful. It's a book of seven different visions, and we're going to find that seven is an important number in this book. It's the number of completion. And all of these visions as they unfold are saturated with Old Testament influence, namely from the book of Daniel, from the book of Ezekiel, from the book of Zechariah, and the book of Isaiah. This book is a prophecy of future events, Make no bones about it, but it's also a source of wisdom and encouragement for us to live in the present. Jesus is the divine author, as all of Scripture, and it's widely accepted that the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John, is the author of Revelation as well. John was exiled on an island called Patmos off the coast of Greece. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears to him in this crazy vision that we're going to dive into more next week. And he speaks words that are intended to sustain the church in a very, very difficult place. Most scholars believe this letter was written in 95 AD underneath the rule of an emperor named Domitian. And that's important, and we're going to get to that more in a second. This letter shows that the church is in a spiritual battle that a spiritual war is taking place behind the scenes of this life. And it's happening all the time, 24-7. Jesus, the lion and the lamb and the Lord, has won decisively. He has the final victory. But while he tarries for his second coming to the world, to earth, in that place, the church continues to be harassed and assaulted by the enemy, Satan, who's known as the dragon, in this book. And the dragon tries to assault the church in many different ways through the allure of having power and influence, through false teachings, through persecutions, through the allure of wanting to have cultural approval. All sorts of ways this 
dragon enemy is trying to pull away from the church. And the letter is intended to bring the church into the awareness of that and encourage them. The letter is written to churches in seven different regions of the known world. Now, before we dive into this, I want to set the main purpose of the book of Revelation. And to do so, what I want us to think of is what's known as the grand narrative, the storyline of life that we see in the book of Revelation. That word narrative might be new to you. A narrative is an agenda for life. A narrative is a story of truth that shapes our worldview. And I have to use that word so you understand what the book of Revelation is intended to do. We have a gift in our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, and our seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and the gift is a lady named Dana Harris. She is a research professor, and Dr. Harris is one of the most respected scholars in the areas of Revelation, the book of Revelation, and the book of Hebrews. And she, with a group of other scholars, have put together what I believe and, and really understand to be the main purpose for the book of Revelation. But to give that, I have to dive into history a little bit. The narrative that we see in the Bible is that Jesus Christ is real and Lord. We see in the Old Testament that Jesus, uh, we see the need for him in our fall. We see the prophecy that he's coming. In the New Testament, we see him come. We see his life and ministry. In the epistles, he's explained. And in Revelation, he returns. The whole book is a book about Jesus Christ. That's the grand narrative of the Bible. Re the book of Revelation has a narrative as well. It gives us a story. But you have to know the context to understand the narrative of Revelation. Revelation was written in the time of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was the ruling force of the entire world. It was more powerful than the United States. It was more powerful than past empires. is more powerful than we can imagine. And the emperors of the Roman Empire, up to this point, flirted with the idea that they themselves as emperors were actually gods. They believed that they were partial gods. They never really crossed the line to say, I am a god, though they came really close. But then came Domitian who's ruling in the time when this letter was written. And Domitian crossed the line and said, I am a god. That was his belief. And as that belief, he put forth as propaganda this false narrative. The Roman Empire was expert at manufacturing false narratives. They were experts at creating agendas and illusions that weren't true. They used coins that were currency of the day. And in the Roman Empire, a coin of piece of currency was propaganda for that emperor. And this was Domitian's coin. You see his silhouette on the left. And on the right, you see a baby sitting on a globe with seven stars. That baby was Domitian's son. The belief was that baby was God as well. The world that the baby's sitting on is the Roman Empire. And the seven stars around that is representative of the fact that the universe swirls around the Roman Empire. That the Roman Empire rules the universe of the day and his baby is God. Revelation, 
the book of Revelation is exposing that fake encounter narrative that the world revolves, the universe revolves around the Roman Empire and the emperor. The book of Revelation was tearing down and destroying the fake and false narrative of that time. It is giving us the true and real storyline that there is only one king in the world. There's only one Lord of Lords, and that is Jesus Christ. It is not the emperor Domitian. And that is the purpose of this book. Revelation is deconstructing this false narrative while at the same time reconstructing a new narrative for the church of Jesus Christ to hang on to and carry through throughout its days until Jesus Christ returns. The book of Revelation was never intended for us as a church to try to figure out when the end of the world is. The book of Revelation was intended to counteract all the false narratives that we experience in our lives on earth today and throughout history, we encounter many false narratives as Christians journeying in this land. False narratives like money and fame will fulfill you and give you happiness. False narratives like my sin and my shame will mark me forever. False narratives like I will always be tied to my past regrets. False narratives like, if God is so good, why does he allow these things to happen? Therefore, he must not exist. False narratives like, the Bible is antiquated and out of date and needs to be brought in. And we can change some things in the Bible to make it be real for our day and age. False narratives like, the way I gain God's approval is by making sure my good outweighs my bad. See, Christians living in the culture we live in are bombarded with all sorts of false counterfeit narratives. And the purpose of revelation is if we give our hearts to it, it will expose the counter narratives we believe and bring us into the true one narrative. It's impossible for us to dive in and pull apart every false narrative because there's a myriad of them. But our goal is to learn this true narrative. And if anything that measures up to this true narrative is false, we blow it off and we grab onto the true narrative. That's the purpose of Revelation. You see, the Christian life is one of repentance and reorienting. We're always doing that. We're realizing that we've gone on and believed a false narrative. It wasn't right. We repent and we reorient our life to truth. That's the pattern of living as a Christian, especially in this day and age. Revelation is constantly exposing false narratives. And I want to give you an example of another one. But I'm going out on a limb here, and I want you to listen very, very carefully. Because I'm going to say something about politics in our world. But I want you to listen to what I'm saying. Because we live in a world of selective hearing. And we live in a world where people are constantly misquoted for saying things they didn't really say. And so I want you to listen closely. Because if you take from this that Pastor Dan said, we're not supposed to get involved in politics, then you didn't hear me because that's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, politics are extremely important. Politics and topics of U.S. government 
are hugely important. I'm kind of a news junkie. I have lots of different news apps. I think every Christian should be in touch with what's happening in the world. I'm not saying we cloister and go off and we never, ever get involved. In fact, I pray that God raises up people to enter the political sphere as Christians who will bring his truth and his word into that dynamic, into that domain, much like William Wilberforce or Abraham Kuyper, that they will engage that world on that level. I think that's crucially important for us as Christians while we wait for the kingdom of God to come and Jesus' second return. I believe we have to be involved in that. Christians should engage their world. The political system we have in our world, in this country, is important. It's something for us to engage. However, I've noticed something happening in recent years. Probably in the last three presidential elections, so it has nothing to do with party. It's not a Republican or Democratic thing. This is just something as a pastor, and as I talk to other pastors, we've noticed in recent times that in the last, I would say, three past presidential elections, there's this thing that happens with Christians that when their preferred candidate loses the presidential election, they lose all their hope. They lose all their joy. It's almost like they get to this place where they're completely and utterly devastated. And I've seen this regardless of the party that's in play here. It seems sometimes as Christians, once they get to the election, if the election doesn't go their way, they lose all trust that God is in control. They lose all trust that they're going to be held in his hand. And they get into this place of absolute devastation where they're completely crushed. And if that happens to you, I would suggest that I think you're buying into a false narrative. I think you're buying into something that God does not want you to buy into. To be disappointed is one thing. That's fine. You could be disappointed if your candidate doesn't win. But to be utterly hopeless and crushed to the core, to the point where it questions the control and sovereignty of God, then you're believing a lie. And Revelation is here to show us there is only one King of Kings. There's only one Lord of Lords, and he will stand. And when you have that perspective, when you live under that true narrative, no election in the United States of America can steal your hope. Because you're living for something bigger than that. And as Christians and in the church of God, we have to return to that place. Now, people say, oh, outcomes of the earthly elections change everything. And I understand what they're saying in a sense. But in another more real sense, as we read Revelation 1, which we are going to in a second, we will get to this place where we understand that nothing can take away God's absolute sovereignty. Nothing can take away God's absolute control. Nothing can change the fact that Jesus Christ holds his church in these times and he is in control of everything and he will come again and rule again forever. Nothing is going to change that. And that is the perspective God wants us to carry. That's the gift the book of Revelation gives us. So much better than trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back. It gives us true narrative to live in these days. And there are many, 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 many false narratives out there. I just pulled that one out. 
May we be people of God who cling to the true narrative that we see in the book of Revelation, that Jesus Christ is Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit is in complete and utter control of everything and nothing will ever change that. May we hang on to that as our blessed hope. Do you want to see that true narrative? Do you want to dive into that? Then let's take a look at Revelation chapter 1. We're going to cover the first six verses this morning. Revelation is very easy to get to. If you have a paper Bible, open, you can feel free to open there now. You just, it's the last book of the Bible. If you have an electronic version, I'll be teaching from the Christian Standard Bible. And let's start by reading Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. This is a revelation that God the Father in ages past gave to God the Son. God the Son through an angel now comes and gives it to John to deliver to the churches, to sustain them in a difficult time. That's what's happening here. This entire book is a message from Jesus to the church. God is not silent in times of difficulty and suffering and persecution. God speaks for these churches who are in this time, God is strengthening their resolve by revealing to them his plan and his sovereignty and his control in the midst of this difficult situation. Now it says here these things will soon take place and we get troubled with that word soon because we say, well, that was written 2,000 years ago and here we are in 2022 and we're still talking soon. And what we have to understand is a couple of things. First of all, soon in the New Testament rarely means our idea soon as American people in this day and age where nothing happens until that moment. This word soon is saying things have been taking place. Rumblings have been going on. We are moving towards this place. It's not like none of this has ever been put into motion, but counter to that, it is in motion and coming forward. The other thing we must always remember is what we learned from 2 Peter chapter 3, 8 to 9, that a day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years is like a day. And God has been very, very patient for good reason. We should all be thankful that he, Jesus did not come back to earth a second time before we could learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God in his grace and his mercy is being patient Yet, while he is patient, he is in complete and utter control. And he knows his plan will come to fruition. Verse 3 says, blessed are those who hear these words. Blessed are those who keep these words. Notice there's a difference. It doesn't just say hear. It's added 
keep. We are to hear these words and we are to keep these words. We persevere in difficult times by remaining faithful to God's required lifestyle. The visions that we're about to see as we dive into this book are not just cute stories to entertain us. It's a prophetic book to bring comfort to followers of Jesus Christ and a warning to those who are not walking with God. It calls us to account before the throne of God. It's not enough just to hear these words. It's until one keeps these words, obeys these words, put these words into practice that you experience the blessings and not the consequences of disobedience. And this is important because the end of verse 3 says, the time is near. Jesus Christ could appear in any moment, and so therefore we must live completely and decisively for him. The remaining two verses give us three anchors of hope that I want to walk through as we close. Three anchors of hope from verses 4 to 6. Starting at verse 4, it says, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest, to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In the, those little verses, those few verses, John gives us three great anchors of truth and anchors of hope to hang on to. The first one is this, that God is still and always in control. God is still and always in control. Look at that unique title he gives him, the one who is, who was, and is to come. This means that God is in total control of the past, he's in total control of the present, and he's in total control of the future. Nothing that we're going to experience in this life is going to be happening out from underneath his hand. He guides the affairs of the human race by his will. Notice here something significant that the original listeners would have jumped at and picked up on quickly. He doesn't start in the past, present, future. He doesn't go chronologically. He says he's the God who is present, who was past, who is to come. That's significant because the people who were under persecution for their faith hearing this letter believed what God said in the past. They believed all the stories of the Old Testament that they learned. They believed how faithful God was to the people of Israel. They also believed that one day God is going to take care of the future. But where they were shifting and wondering about was the present. Could God allow us to go through such pain and horror? And it's in that place that the letter starts that he is the one who is. He's with you in the present. He is in control of the present. He is God, King of kings, Lord of lords of the present. Do you ever feel like God is not in control of your present? Don't ever believe that lie. This title corrects that thinking. 
with loving hope and assurance, they would have noticed this immediately. This is an anchor of hope for our soul, that God is in complete control of the here and now, even when you don't see it, even when it doesn't seem like it. What an anchor to hold on to. Anchor number two, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit as a trinity rule over all. Look at something that's somewhat confusing in these verses in verse 4. John, to the seven churches of Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. People wondered, what is he talking about, the seven spirits before his throne? Are those angels? They're not angels. Here's a little tip for Bible reading. I don't know about you, but in my Bible, it says seven spirits, and there's a little letter above there. Do you have that in your Bible? Mine, it's a little letter F. Jump down to the footnote in my Bible. It says, or the sevenfold spirit. The seven spirits around the throne is referring to the Holy Spirit. And John is using Old Testament language from Isaiah 11, verse 2, from Zechariah 4 and Revelation 5. And the interpretation of these seven spirits is the sevenfold Holy Spirit. And I don't have time to get into it, but if you look at Isaiah 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, you see all these seven attributes talking about the Holy Spirit. It's the sevenfold Spirit. One commentator says this, this seven spirits is the sevenfold Holy Spirit. The perfect Holy Spirit is God and of the Lamb with Christ that we're going to see in chapter 5, verse 6, and therefore stands before the throne with Jesus. So the picture here is right in the beginning of this vision that John has in Revelation, right as it starts, right in the beginning of all the crazy wild stuff that we're going to see take place and unfold in this world, right at the beginning of it all stands God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit as the foundation in complete control of it all. That's what he's putting forth here. What an anchor for us to hold on to. Finally, anchor number three is Jesus Christ himself. In this remaining verse, in verse five, we see who Jesus is and what he's done. And there's three titles here for him. The first one is faithful witness in verse five. He's a faithful witness. Jesus in his earthly life is a model for all of his followers, especially those going through persecution and difficulty. Jesus persevered in his mission while he lived on earth and enduring horrible pain and suffering, and he continued on as a faithful witness. Jesus' life shows us how to remain true to God in difficult times, and we need that picture for us to walk through that in a world that's turned against God. The next title we see is firstborn from among the dead. What on earth does that mean? Firstborn from among the dead. The term means the first to rise from the dead and be seated in a place of ultimate supremacy over the world. He's the first to resurrect from the dead, defeating the powers of death and be placed in ultimate supremacy over all creation. The emphasis is twofold here. First, he is sovereign over life and death, 
And through his victory, he controls both life and death. This is why as Christians, we don't need to fear death because Jesus is the one who controls death itself. He rules and reigns over it. What an anchor we have to walk out these days. And finally, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, it says. The same Jesus who rules over life and death rules over all earthly kings. And when you scan the book of Revelation, this phrase, kings of the earth, means different things at different times. It means evil rulers who live on earth. It means the leaders who are gathered underneath what we're going to see is the beast. It means the final war that is to come. It means the enemies of God and Jesus Christ rules over all of them, holds them in check. They're utterly defeated by Jesus Christ. He will rule them with a rod of iron, it says. And these attributes lead John into total praise. Look at the second part of verse 5. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. We talked about the new heaven and new earth the last three weeks. Jesus gives us that as priests to rule with him to his God and Father. It brings him into praise because it is so true that he who loves us in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your difficulties, you have to know that Jesus loves you. It is so true. And his love is rooted in the demonstration and the act of the cross where Jesus brought us into relationship with him, as it says here, by his blood and made us a kingdom back in relationship with God as heirs who will rule and reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. When you go through difficult times, letters can mean so much, can't they? To get a note of encouragement from a friend or a loved one can make such a difference in difficult times. Revelation is a letter from Jesus to the church. And as one pastor put it in a sermon, it says, this book of prophecy we call Revelation of Jesus Christ is intended to come to people who need hope. Whether it's the end of time or the end of your rope, the Savior and King of all says, I'm here. I'm here no matter how remote you may seem to yourself. I'm here no matter how out of touch you feel with yourself. No matter what you think I've been like in the times in the past, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm here in the middle of your darkest circumstance to put my hand on you, to show you my glorious power, to walk you through the fire. I am here. I have come to show you that as precious as your life is on earth, it is only a brief moment compared to my kingdom. And I'm going to take you through all of it. In the middle of our time and our space and our problems and yes, our future, Jesus is there and he will rule and reign. As we journey through this book of Revelation, let us look to and rest in and even savor 
the glorious love, power, and kingship of almighty Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd open our eyes. And as we take this journey into Revelation, I ask that you would use your word and your spirit to comfort us where we need to be comforted. And yes, to confront us where we need to be confronted and to convict us where we need to be convicted. Father, I pray as we dive into this book that you would grant by your grace a spirit of humility among us. Not a spirit that would rise up and say, yeah, but, but a spirit that rise up and say, tell me more. Create within us, God, a place where we can fully receive you and receive what you have for us because the fact is, whether we realize it or not, we so desperately need you. We ask that you'd meet us in that place of desperation that it, because I know that's your heart and that's your will and you've been faithful to the church through the ages to do that. And so God, open our hearts and do your work within us. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name, amen.